Welcome to the Horror Comics Podcast, episode 17. I know that I played this in the last episode, but I just, I love this song so much. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know why. It just kind of like was on my radar not too long ago again. And I've always known that riff, that banana, but like, I guess I just never registered the rest of the song. And it came up um, within the last, I don't know, a few months, maybe a year or so. And I was just like, this song is fucking incredible. Like, that's <laughs> such a great uh, chorus. Uh, and like the, yeah, the harmonies and everything, it's just awesome. Um, so I'm using it again. And you know what? I'm going to repeat songs. And I have in the past, so it's nothing new. But welcome to episode 17. We're going back. Uh, in the, uh, well, we're going back in the archives. We're going back to EC. We're going to the haunt of fear. Now, the thing is, it's not, so we're, okay, so we'll just, we're doing uh, the haunt of fear number 12. Um, now, I guess the catch is, this is one of the reprints that they did in 1973 under Russ Cochran. Uh, so these are some stories that were originally printed in 1950s. Um, and I don't know. Well, well, okay. As far as I can tell, actually, it looks like this is a pretty accurate reprint from the original number 12, uh, like I said, that was in 1952, actually. It looks like it was the March issue of 1952. Um, so it looks like they just, like, scaled it down uh, in 1973 for a, uh, I guess, what, Silver Age-sized issue. Um, it's awesome. So one of these, you can actually... You can actually see a live-action version of the first story in this in the, uh, I think it is in the 70s, uh, Tales from the Crypt movie, which is nothing like, well, aesthetically, it's nothing like the Tales from the Crypt show, but I've talked about that way early on. Um, 
I am having a hard time finding, I mean, credits for these. That's where I'm like, okay, I, I, I want to, you know. Well, here's something. This is at least something. Uh, I don't know if this is going to be accurate to the entire book. But I can at least find these credits. So we have uh, Al Feldstein as the writer, uh, Jack Davis as the inker, Johnny Craig as inker as well, and Joe Orlando as inker, and then Graham Ingalls on the cover. Um, again, uh, you know, it, I don't know if if I see anything like that hints at different credits, I'll let you know. But uh, as it stands, they give a uh, biography on Johnny Craig, artist of the issue, when you open the cover, on the inside of the cover. So maybe he was, uh, you know, a little little bit more... uh, up front than these credits, which I mean, again, he's just like listed as like a second inker, which I, I feel like when they were doing this website, it was just like, hey, whatever. Um, he's just one of the artists and that for whatever reason in their logic, that's how they labeled it, which is weird. But, um, but yeah, I mean, if I get to, um, some credits, we'll, we'll figure it out, but, um, it is reprints. So it's, it's up in the air for what it is. But before we get into the issue, I, Wanted to throw this out there. Now, I love hearing from uh, listeners, from folks, from uh, creators, from writers, artists, whatever. And it's been awesome getting to talk to some of you. Um, but if you want to get in touch, you can uh, send me what the fuck ever via uh, email at horrorcomicspodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at horrorcomicspod. And uh, I'd love to hear from you. Um, I'm happy, you know, to promote any up and, up and coming books or, or or just whatever books. You know, honestly, um, if you are creating a comic book that is either coming out or you're doing a crowdfunding campaign for it to come out, I'll be happy to mention it. Um, you know, I don't have a huge reach by any stretch of the imagination, but um, I'm happy to do what I can and tweet out and, and mention it. As I did in the last episode, um, I was sent some incredible material um, and books. Uh, I talked about it at length in the last issue with the, talking about Lucas and talking about Show's End. Um, great books and stuff you should go look up and, and go back to the Indiegogo on Lucas Book 2 um, and go buy Show's End as it's coming out at uh, Mad Cave Studios. But... uh yeah, I'd love to hear from you, but here's one thing I want to do because it's October and I want to get more frequent with putting out the episodes. And, and and I've mentioned this before with talking about like, you know, real life, um, uh, Fast and Furious going on in the background. I don't even know if this shows up in the episode, in the, uh, picks up the, in the microphone, but like I hear it, like it's like rattling my fucking brain. So I'm just still compelled to react to it. So. 
apologies if you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. We couldn't hear it. But Jesus, it's like it's just someone revving their fucking engine and their tires on my head. Anyway, besides the point, um, I would love to, like, if you guys have, like, legitimate, cool, you know, real life events, like, that are kind of, like, spooky or, like, ghost stories or, like, anything in the realm of the comics that we talk about, you know, like, something real life, um, I know it's stupid to be like, don't send any fake shit in, but, like, because, you know, if someone's going to send in fake shit, they're gonna, but, like, I, I would love to, let's just, like, get some real stuff, you know, whether you send it in via, like, uh, I don't know, record yourself talking about it, and send me the mp3, or type it up in an email, or send it, again, on Twitter, um, I'd love to hear from you, you know, the listeners, and maybe talk about some of that stuff too, uh, as well as a comic, um, and maybe even like make that its own episode, you know, for the month of October. But uh, anyway, if if that if that's something that interests you and that you've got something to talk about, um, you know, that's. like a crazy experience or something you can't really explain. Um, I'd love to hear it. I love that stuff. I really do. Um, so please, 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 please send it my way. I'd love to hear it. Um, like I said, so, and again, with the, the horror movie suggestions for 2019, because like I said in the last episode, I'm still just like, I just don't, no, um, there's one I saw an ad for last night, actually, that's a adaptation of a Stephen King and Joe Hill, um, I think short story or novella or something, it's like In the Tall Grass or something like that, that I actually watched the trailer, and it looks really good, um, so I might check that out, uh, hopefully, uh, soon, so, you know. Who knows, but uh, I need suggestions for horror movies. I love October. I love Halloween, and I want to hear your stories, and I'd love to hear just anything from you. So um, we'll go ahead and get into EC Comics' The Haunt of Fear. We open with The Witch's Cauldron. <laughs> Stephanie. Keep coming back for more, eh? Well, there's plenty more. So keep coming. Besides, my idiot editor just gave me a boost in salary. It's a boost of a rival publisher. I get the rest of his course next week. <laughs> yep, it's me now. The old witch, mistress of the haunt of fear. Shiver, chef, creep cooker, and all that sort of rot. Come on in. My cauldron's boiled off to a crud waiting for you. Looks like garbage. Hey, there's a yarn, and I'll just tell it to you. It's about a garbage collector. Say, did you get any St. Valentine's Day cards? Well, this garbage collector did. Ready? 
I'll call this horror helping poetic justice. Old Abner Elliot stood on the porch of his ramshackle house, grinning down at the chattering, giggling group of children before him. His wrinkled eyes were glazed and wet as he studied their beaming faces. Abner Elliot had been making toys for these children in the neighborhood, such as dolls, drums, and other toys of the like. Old Abner Elliot was a garbage man. For 36 years, he'd been collecting the refuse of the town. He'd never made much money at it, but he'd been a happy man. That is, until about two years before, when Abner's wife had died. We see Abner with a group of children. Glad you like the toys, kids. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Mr. Elliot. Since his wife's death, Abner had been lonely. Very lonely. So he'd started salvaging the broken toys he'd found in the refuse cans. He'd worked through the year repairing them so that he could give them to the poor children at Christmas time. And one child says, Going to do this again next year, Mr. Elliot? Yep. Every year till I, well, till I can't anymore. Gee, you're swell, Mr. Elliot. Can we come around and watch you sometimes, maybe, huh? Watch you work? Anytime, kids, anytime. Directly across the street from Abner Elliot's rundown house, Henry Burgundy. The town's richest man had built a luxurious, modern home for himself and his only heir, his spoiled son, Harold. Listen to those brats, howling and yelling. Look at that broke-down rat trap. It's an eyesore. Why doesn't he sell out, Dad? Well, what can I do, son? I've... I've tried pulling strings to evict him, but he owns the house and lot, free and clear. Dirty old slob, a garbage man, no less. Ugh, how revolting. Henry Burgundy had offered Abner a handsome price for his dilapidated old home. But Abner had refused to sell. Ah, the old geezer is sentimental about the dump. He says he and his wife lived there happily for their whole married life, uh, he wants to die there, too, just as she did. It ruins the neighborhood, Dad. Depreciates the value of our property. Unless... Unless we can force him to move. Start a smear campaign. It's a sensitive old fool, but we could make it rough on him. Hey, now you're talking, Pop. And first of all, let's figure out how to get rid of those lousy animals he's got. In Abner's loneliness, he'd begun to pick up any poor stray dog or cat that he'd found searching out food in the refuse cans. He'd taken them into his home, 
fed and cared for them, and kept them as company to fill his lonely hours. From the house across the street. He must have seven or eight dogs and ten or eleven cats. You know how he feeds them, Dad? He collects scraps from the garbage truck. He couldn't afford to feed one of those strays if he had to buy the food. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is make him get rid of those pets of his. And I'll start a gossip campaign. Uh, Boy, we'll, we'll run him out of town fast. Meanwhile, Abner, oblivious to the insidious campaign the Burgundies were starting, continued making his rounds. We have him pulling into town, and uh, children, very excited, greeting him, asking if there's any candy, and he's handing out candy. They're thanking him. Kind-hearted Abner never failed to fill his pockets with candy, bought with his hard-earned money. He'd pass it out to the children as they crowded around his ancient garbage wagon. To the folks of the town, Abner and his rattle-trap rig were a friendly and familiar sight. Everybody loved old Abner Elliot. We see him greeted kindly. But not so kindly by a local who says, Morning, Abner. How's business today? Uh, smelly, huh? <laughs> but of course, Abner is nice, and he's like, <laughs> oh, That's right, Mr. Garden. But the wheels of hate were beginning to turn. And we have Mr. Burgundy talking to uh, a higher up in the town. It says, Sorry, Mr. Burgundy, there's nothing I can know about it. Uh, maybe if the folks around town wanted a licensing law passed. Dog and cat license, eh? Uh, say, that'd do it. He couldn't afford to buy those. And so, on cold January nights, How's that, Dad? Dig him up more. Old man Baker will be steaming. Those are his prized rose bushes. The diggings in the various gardens around town were blamed on Abner Elliot Smuts, Mr. Baker. They must have done it. We ought to make him get rid of them. Mr. Baker is clearly. Uh, angry that his prized roses are destroyed. And he agrees uh, with this herald. (laughs) Little by little, the townsfolk whose gardens had been destroyed were aroused. Really? (laughs) Okay. My kind of garden party. He has got to get rid of those stray mongrels. A license law is the only way. Then let's make the town board pass one. And so... Uh, yes, officer. Abner's answering the door. It's about your dogs and cats, Mr. Elliot. You'll have to buy licenses for them. I'm, they 
go to the pound. It's it's a new law. Licenses? How how much are they? Two fifty apiece, Mister Elliot. That adds up to an awful lot in your menagerie. It was a sad day for Abner, Abner Elliot when they came and took his pets away. Eleven cats and ten dogs would have cost the poor man more than fifty dollars. He just didn't have the money. There they go, Pop. It's only... He's only kept one. When I'm through, son, he won't even be able to afford that one. Henry Burgundy went to see an acquaintance in a neighboring town. So, you want me to start a garbage collecting service in competition with Abner Elliot, eh, uh, Henry? That's right, Fred. I want to put him out of business. You cut his price in half. I can't do it, Henry. I'd lose money. Don't worry, Fred. I'll make up for what you lose. You'll be sure to show a handsome profit. Besides, I'll pay you out of my own pocket. But keep this quiet, eh? And meanwhile, we have two women talking. That's what I said. He's nothing but a filthy old man, Mrs. Butterfly. Do you realize he brought rats into this neighborhood? Oh, dear. Lord knows what your children learned from him, Mr. Phelps. He's so dirty, after all. A garbage man. How awful. A man like him should be forced to move out of this neighborhood, Mrs. Ames. It isn't respectable. You're so right. I don't. I don't know who the voices of this uh, spattering of women should be, but I, I, I'm just doing what looks right on the panel. And when one of the children became seriously ill, the Burgundies jumped at the chance. It's probably that candy Abner Elliot gives the kids, full of disease, dirty, contaminated. And he ought to be run out. That's what. Then Fred Amsterdam moved... These fucking names. Then Fred Amsterdam moved in. Backed by Old Man Burgundy. Half the price, you say? Correct. Half the price you're paying now and better service. What do I sign? They're selling uh, cheaper garbage services to the... uh, Yeah, to the neighbors... The wheels of hate were spinning faster now. You have a man talking to his child. You heard me. If I catch you or hear that you went to that dirty old man's house, I'll whip the daylights out of you, understand? Yes, Daddy. And so, his pet's gone, the children no longer coming to see him, his business wiped out, people refusing to talk to him. Abner Elliot withdrew into the loneliness of his dreary, run-down home. Now Abner, crying. I can't understand it, boy. It used to be folks were friendly. Now, now I'm all alone, except for you, boy. He's talking to his, his one last dog. 
But as February rolled around, the Burgundies prepared to pour salt into Abner Elliott's gaping wounds. Listen, son, get this. I bought this valentine for old man Elliot. And noisier children, loud as a bell. Pungent as perfume, but you just smell. From garbage. Ha! <laughs> ah, I added that last crack. Hey, <laughs> that's terrific, Ted. I, I gotta get me one. I, I have an idea, son. I, I know where I can buy a whole carload of these insulting valentines. If we could get everyone in town to send old man Elliot one. He'd move out, sure. We could just buy his property cheap. Let's get him and pass him out. I, I don't know what these voices are at this point. And so as St. Valentine's Day neared... Here's one for you, Mr. Baker. Make sure you mail it out, eh? Eh, <laughs> this one's a low, Henry. Uh, fifteen and fifteen make thirty. Young gals are awfully purty, but on Valentine's Day, all I want to say is you are disgustingly dirty, eh? <laughs> Mr. Burgundy and his spoiled son, Harold, passed out the heartbreaking cards to the whole town. We have other townspeople. Listen to the card I got for the old man Elliot, Martha. Uh, a tree is beautiful if a sona prunes it. But our town isn't. Because your house ruins it. No! <laughs> isn't that something? On St. Valentine's Eve, stamps were licked and envelopes sealed. They all got cancer from licking the stamps. We see a couple of neighbors. Uh, hi, Ed. Nice night. Yeah, to mail St. Valentine's Day cards, eh? <laughs> and early the next morning, Abner is checking his mail with his dog. Look at this boy, a whole stack of mail. How come? What's today? Oh, that's it, February 14th. That's St. Valentine's Day. Well, I'll be darned. These little tykes didn't forget me after all. Then, one by one, old Abner Elliot opened and read the vicious, shameful cards. S some people live in the country. Some people live in town. Why don't you do us a, a favor and jump in the river and... Uh, some folks are... Born to make money, uh, others to kill and to rob. I was born for the purpose to call you a dirty old uh, slob. Of course, Abner is like weeping. And honestly, if you like reading this, you, you will be close to. It's really heartbreaking. For weeks after St. Valentine's Day, no one saw hide nor hair of Abner Elliot. Maybe he left town, Pop. Went away. Then I'll buy up his house for back taxes. <laughs> Finally, after two months had passed, curiosity got the better of the town folk. They milled around Admiral Elliot's run-down home. 
Let's bust down that door. Let's see what it looks like inside. Yeah, the filthy hovel. So they broke into Abner Elliott's house. Only it surprised them. It wasn't infested with rats. And it wasn't filthy and dirty. Why, it's... It's all neat and orderly. Spick and span, except for some dust on the polished tables. Yes, Abner Elliott's house surprised the townspeople. Really surprised them. Everything was in its place. Everything was clean. Spotless. Only one thing marred the orderliness. Only one thing was out of place. Abner's two-month-old corpse hanging in the parlor. He, he's dead! Or he killed himself! Now, now, kitties. Don't peek at the end. Relax and enjoy it. Don't worry. I'm as mad at Henry Burgundy and his son as you are. We won't let him get away with this. Or rather, Abner won't. But it took him almost a year. Let's see. It was a year. A whole year after Abner killed himself. They buried him in Potter's Field. Just outside of town. On the eve of February 14th, just as the town steeple bell tolled midnight. On the first anniversary of Abner's suicide. A strange thing happened. The soil on Abner's grave cracked open. A fetid, rotting hand reached up. Another followed. The thing pushed up into the brisk winter air. It got to its feet, swaying uncertainly. Then it stumbled off toward town. Crawling clods of grave mud fell away as it tottered along. Bits of muddy, moldy, foul-smelling flesh dropped in its path. It seemed to know, to sense where it was going. Harold Burgundy was addressing St. Valentine's Day cards when the thing came in. They were leftovers from the previous year. Harold spun around as the searing stench burned his nostrils. Ah! In the morning, old Henry Burgundy looked for Harold and couldn't find him. But in his room, he found a neatly tied package. The card said, A Valentine's Day greeting to Henry. He opened it. Good Lord! Yep, kitties! Harold's heart was in the neat little package, all bloody and sticky. Well, don't look so shocked. That's what you send on St. Valentine's Day, isn't it? Hearts? What? Not real ones. And I've been doing it for years. No wonder I'm not popular. Now, if you could still hold this crummy book, turn to the vault keeper. He's got his own yarn to tell. This is the old witch in her one and only guest spot. Signing off.
Poetic justice, how about that? I was really, like, sure that I, when I came up, and I recorded that last night, and I came up to, to do this part, and, and hopefully finish recording this episode, but I, like, scoured through the episode, past episodes and whatnot. I was like, I, I, okay, I cannot find it. I know I've talked about the movie in episode four, maybe it's episode seven. I, I don't remember. It's either four or seven. But, uh, yeah, so the movie, the 1972 Tales from the Crypt movie, uh, they, they do this, this story. And, uh, Peter Cushing plays Abner Elliott, which for, for some reason they renamed him Grimdike and the son's name is Elliott. It's, it's weird. I don't understand why writers do that. Like, I don't know. Uh, whatever. Uh, who knows? Maybe there was a popular character in a different show or something at the time or a different movie named that. I, I don't know. Some of the whatever. But Peter Cushing did a really good job playing the part, being like the, you know, the heartbroken, you know, old, older man, uh, elderly man who is uh, beloved one second and all of a sudden shunned uh, because of some uh, assholes, uh, some dickheads. And those dickheads are, it's really well performed in the movie by a couple of shitheads uh, who play great dickheads and uh, you really you grow to hate them. Uh, but yeah, so the, the thing is, is like the movie is like the story and there's, it, it, I haven't seen it in a while. It's pretty much like a direct adaptation from the story though. I guess other than the names, um, they just tell this story. So uh, with the comic, and in that movie, yeah, well, never mind. I, again, I talk more in detail about that, about that, uh, whole thing in one of those other two episodes, uh, or about the, the Crypt Keeper is played by uh, Ralph Richardson, and they don't really go out of their way to, I mean, you know, he doesn't look like the, the Crypt Keeper in the, Crypt Keeper in the comic doesn't look like he does in like the, the, the revival show in the 90s, or the, the two movies they made from that. Uh, he, you know, I guess he would more favor the comic book version, Ralph Richardson would, but uh, they really still didn't go out of their way to give him like I don't know, like a mole or <laughs> you know, uh, you know something. Uh, he's just kind of in a brown hood, and he's like, "Hello, you did a bunch of shit, and I don't like it. You're going to be punished for it. Sit down, shut the fuck up. Now we're all going to watch your stories unfold." And then they're all like, "Oh my goodness, how did you know about this? Who told you?" You're punished, and that's pretty much the movie. But you do get to see the stories. The stories actually in the movie are good. And sorry, I'll stop talking about the movie that I've already talked about. Uh, so this story, uh, it's good. It, it's, I mean, it's heartbreaking, uh, but you get your nice little bit of revenge there. And I do like that in the way that, like, they just kind of took, he, he loved, like, helping the children. He loved his animals. Uh, he loved making the children happy and, and, you know, uh, that was kind of his service to the town. He was just, you know, the fun, like my old neighborhood growing up. We had a, there was a, a an older couple actually that, um, it was like a, I can't remember what the deal was, and I have no idea what they did, but like once a week, and it was like a specific day, and I want to say it was like like Thursday. I'm actually I'm pretty sure it was like on Thursdays for whatever reason. Like we could go to their house, and they would always bring out um and their like like their uh not garage but like an open like carport or whatever uh we would like we could sit under there and they bring out this huge box of just all different types of candy like just anything you could think of 
And I feel bad now. I can't remember their names, but they're really old and like everybody in the neighborhood loved them. And, uh, they weren't, <clears throat> they weren't garbage men, um, or garbage folks. But yeah, so that was awesome. We loved that. And like the kids, anytime like the new kid would move into the neighborhood, it would like meet him or whatever. Like you got to come with us on Thursdays. It's a bunch of, you know, whatever candy. Uh, yeah, you know, you like, uh, I, I don't know what candy did I like when I was a kid. Probably not the same ones I like now, regardless. Uh, so it'd be like, you know, I, I could kind of relate because I was like, it'd be like those people suddenly getting smeared by the neighborhood because, you know, they had a carport and not a garage, which actually everyone in the neighborhood had a carport and not a garage, but still. Um, yeah, so regardless, it's just a kind of a heartbreaking, like kind of fucked up story uh, On in that sense, um, you know. You get a nice uh, little bit of gore. They did took away everything that he loved uh, in his life, and so in return, he doesn't he doesn't kill Harold, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Henry Burgundy. Harold is the son. Um, he kills the son, and actually, he just all you find when because you know, like you said, he finds the heart, but like he took away the thing that like maybe Henry cared about instead of actually killing him so i thought that was a you know an interesting a fun kind of uh i say fun that's fucked up wait this is the horror comics podcast no it isn't um it's it's fun like it's a fun way of revenge of like you know now fucking henry probably goes and kills himself or like you know has to live with that for the rest of his life um so yeah i liked it um but we can go ahead and Move right along to, as the old witch said, the vault keeper is going to take it from here. Ha <laughs> ha, yep. It's the vault keeper again. Your host in horror. All ready to have your wits scared out of you? Oh, only half ready. Hey, well... Come into the vault of horror and sit yourself down on that corpse over there. Ah, ah, be careful. Don't sit on his chest. The tattoo isn't dry yet. Oh, I'm practicing to be a tattoo artist. A correspondence school. They said it was a stiff course. Guess I was inspired by the tale. I'm about to tell tell you. I call it... On a Dead Man's chest Steve Anderson the wealthy steamship line owner leaned out the doorway of his expensively tiled bathroom and called to his young and attractive wife Helen the phone's ringing answer it huh I'm shaving I can't Steve be a doll and answer it yourself I'm dressing Mr. Anderson, I'm resisting the urge, resist the urge. Mr. Anderson wiped the shaving cream from his face and hurried through his spacious penthouse apartment to the jangling phone. The many tattoos he'd obtained years before gleamed on his now sagging muscles. Hello? Steve, I just got back to the States. This is Larry. Steve Anderson, one-time seaman, who'd worked himself up to ship's captain, then ship owner, 
then owner of a fleet of cargo boats, shouted with glee into the black phone he held in his huge fist. Larry, you son of a gun! Why don't you let a guy know when his kid brother's coming home? I I thought I'd surprise you, Steve. Surprise me? You could knock me over with a feather. Uh, come, come on over. You must meet Helen, my wife. How long has it been, Lord? Four years now? Uh, oh, okay, good. Well, we'll see you in an hour, then. Steve, we have an appointment with the Vanderhorns. Mr. Anderson hung up and turned to his wife. A broad grin covered his once swarthy face. Cancel it, Helen. Uh, that was my kid brother, Larry. He just got in. I, wanna, I want you to meet him. You'll love him. Gee, four years. I wonder if he's changed much. But Steve, the, the Vanderhorns are very important people. Couldn't your brother wait till we got home? Nonsense. No one's as important to me as Larry. See this tattoo here? I got this in Sumatra. Uh, the day Larry... I know, I know. You told me all about those ugly things a hundred times. What can I tell the Vanderhorns? Oh, baby, don't be angry. What do you meet, Larry? You, you'll see. You'll be crazy about him. I feel like a father to that kid. I put him through school. Don't you think you ought to finish shaving and get dressed, Steve? Uh, uh oh, yeah, okay. Uh, you call the Vanderhorns and make our apologies, eh, Helen? All right, Steve. She thinks to herself. Dread it. Giving up a social evening with them to welcome his grimy sailor brother. <laughs> well, kiddies, I suppose you're wondering oh, what a ravishing beauty like Helen saw in a big old slob like Steve, eh? It's simple. She married him for his dough. She'd never been sorry either. Except when the old tar started spouting off about where and when he got each of his tattoos. She'd never been sorry, that is, until that night. Ah, but I'm getting ahead of my story. Later, the front door chimes announced Larry's arrival. Helen went to let him in. As she opened the door, <gasps> Hi, who are you? I'm Larry Anderson. Is Steve, or his wife, here? I, I'm Helen. I'm Steve's wife. You, you, oh, I, I'm sorry that I never expected such a young and beautiful woman. Why, thank you for the sweet compliments, Larry. Uh, come in, Steve's dressing. My brother surprises me, Helen. I must say I admire his taste. Uh, frankly, I never thought he had it in him. Larry! Steve burst into the room, his booming voice echoing through the penthouse apartment. Larry, you look swell. Really great, man. Look at the shoulders on him, Helen. Uh, four years at sea certainly built you into a he-man, Larry. Hey, any tattoos? Nope, not one, Steve. Helen pours drinks. No tattoos? What kind of sailor are you? When I was your age, I had four already. One for every trip. Would you like a drink, Larry? Okay, Helen. Say, did you ever put one on your chest, Steve? I remember you were saving that spot. That's right, and I'm still saving it. A really special tattoo is going to go there. Something really exceptional. I don't know what. But someday, before I die, I'll have it done. Tell us about your adventures at sea, Larry. I'd love to hear them. Ah, uh, they'd be old hat to Steve. 
how about going out and doing the town? So Steve took Helen and Larry out on the town. He was really happy, Steve was. Proud of his younger brother and proud of his beautiful wife. He was content to sit at a nightclub table and watch them dance together and drink and watch and drink and wash and... (laughs) Steve's drinking a lot, Larry. I think we'd better take him home. After this dance, Helen, but why are you worrying about him anyway? You don't love him? What are you talking about? Of course I don't kid me, Helen. I see the contempt you have for him. I could see it in your eyes. You married him for his money, didn't you? How dare you? I wasn't born yesterday, Helen. You're a gorgeous kid. You could have hooked some handsome brute easily. And Steve's no prize package. I know him. I'm surprised you've tolerated him as long as you have. He must have dominated you the way he's always dominated me. I hate him myself. Helen broke away from Larry and elbowed her way across the dance floor to the table where Steve sat grinning idiotically at an empty highball glass. What's the matter? Shirley, don't you like this place? What's going on in this place? This show here stinks, anywho. Helen helped Steve to his feet and guided him out of the smoke-filled club. Larry caught up with him outside. He took Steve's other arm. Helen glared at Larry angrily. He smiled back at her. I'm so happy. My beautiful wife and my kid brother are so happy. Where are we going now? Let's uh, let's go down and walk this place. I know down a... No, Steve, you're going home. They staggered along the dark street, the three of them. Suddenly, Stephen Anderson stiffened. His face lit up. What is it, Stephen? What do you see? Look at that. A tattoo shop. I never saw that place before. Uh, that's it. That's it. What are you talking about, Steve? Steve stumbled across the deserted street to the dark little shop with a tiny light glimmering in the window. Now I know what tattoo I want for that special spot on my chest. Stephen, come back. The door to the shop squeaked open and a bell tinkled in the back. A small queer man grinned at Stephen. Larry and Helen came in behind him. Yes, sir, what can I do for you? Stephen, please. I want a tattoo. Something special. Steve explained what he wanted to the weird little man. I want a wife on one side, middle, middle, and my kid brother on the other side, right here, arm in arm, all of us. As you wish, sir. It took the strange tattoo man two hours to complete his work of art. When he was finished, three happy figures adorned Stephen's chest. There you are, sir. Perfect. Just what I wanted. What do you think, Helen? Larry? Very nice. Now let's go home. Steve was out on his feet when Helen and Larry got him to the apartment. They put him to sleep. Then... Helen moved close to Larry, looking up at him. I'm not sure, Larry. Everything you said is true. I didn't mind being married to him so much until you came... Come here, baby. They embrace and they kiss. (laughs) 
Yes, so Larry called Helen's number, and she answered. Their love affair grew warmer and warmer. Whenever Stephen wasn't around, they were in each other's arms. Steve, of course, never suspected. He was so happy. Finally, things reached the boiling point. No, Larry, I won't divorce Steve to marry you. He'd throw you out of the steamship line, blackball you. We'd live like paupers. But we can't go on like this, Helen. Steve might find out. There must be another way, a, a way to get rid of him and still get his dough. You mean murder him, don't you? Exactly. It could look like an accident. He could slip and fall while taking a bath and smash his skull on the tile floor. At first, Helen was appalled at the idea of killing her husband, but Larry easily convinced her that it was the only way. So the plans were made. Oh, Larry, uh, come in. I was just going to take a bath. Uh, Hand me the soap, huh? Sure, Steve, sure. Of course, this is all taking place in the bathroom. I'm like, why would they walk into the... Anyway, here we go. Suddenly, Larry sprung forward. He locked his arms around Stephen's chest, pinning Steve's hands behind him. Uh, Larry, what what in blazes are you doing? All right, Helen. Hold him, Larry. Hold him. Steve struggled to free himself, but Larry held him fast. Helen brought the heavy club down on Steve's skull again and again. Finally, the flabby ship line owner went limp, his head a soggy and oozing mass of red. That's enough, Helen. That's enough. He's dead. (sighs) Just one more. Just one. Larry let his brother slip to the blood-splattered tile floor. He snatched the club from Helen's hand and hurried down the cellar with it. He tossed it to the roaring furnace and watched it burn to a crisp. Then he went back upstairs and phoned the police. Uh, This is Larry Anderson. I'm calling from my brother's apartment. You better come quickly. There's been a terrible accident. Helen screams. Helen's horrified shriek echoed through the house. Larry finished giving the police the information that Steve had slipped and fallen while taking a bath. Then he hung up and rushed to the bathroom. What in blazes are you screaming about? The cops are on their way. Did you take care of everything? Look! Look at his chest! Good Lord! Get me some acid, quick! We've got to take it off! Hurry! You've got me into this! This was all your idea! It's your fault if we get caught... Well, I'm not going to take the blame. I can say you did it. Helen, put down that gun. You're mad. His chest, the cops. I'll get it off myself after I've killed you in self-defense. The tiny pistol in Helen's hand barked twice, and Larry crumbled forward, face down, to the tile floor. And I'll still have Steve Stowe. As she fires... But when the police came, they found Helen sitting beside Steve's body, surrounded by acids, ammonia, bleaches, and sandpaper. She was babbling incoherently. She's off her rocker. Completely out of her mind. She's trying to remove this old guy's tattoo. Hey, look at it, Bert. The tattoo on Steve's chest had changed. It no longer depicted the three of them arm in arm. Instead, it showed Larry holding Steve fast while Helen struck him with a club. 
and on the chest of the tattooed figure of Steve was a tiny tattoo. It showed Larry holding Steve fast while Helen struck him with a club. And on the chest... <laughs> a picture and a picture and a picture, and so on, eh, kiddies? The funny thing about it all was that Helen couldn't rub out the tattoo after she'd rubbed out Larry and Steve, which just goes to prove that the pin is mightier than the sword. Or is it a needle a tattoo artist uses? Oh well, I never was a stickler for detail. But don't pin me down. Uh, by now, next comes... You should pardon the expression, the text. Ah, uh, go ahead, read it. And that text is just ads for, you know, uh, collected editions of these books or, or like, uh, yeah, you know, stacks of these different issues and whatnot. You've got a t-shirt that I actually tried to find online. It's just a white short sleeve t-shirt with like the red ring. Within that red ring, you have black text that says an entertaining comic, and then a white circle in the middle of that with the EC, and I was like, well, surely this is on eBay. Couldn't find it. There are mock-ups of this same design. It's just like, you know, black and white, um, white shirt with, like, black text and whatnot, and the rings and stuff. And that's a cool shirt, too, but they're kind of high. Um, but I couldn't find this original one, so I, I don't know, you know, I guess the people that got it were just, like, holding on to it. Uh, there's other merchandise, but that's what they're talking about there with the text. And then there's, uh, the witch's, witch's niche, niche, and this is, uh, the letter column. But as far as this story goes, I actually, I really like this. I mean, this is the standard, you know, format for these stories of like the, I don't know, you have like the lovers that, you know, try to, Kill off the husband for the fortune. That that's that's very standard for EC and horror comics in general, um, from at least this era and and surrounding it. Uh, but I like the tattoo. Obviously, that's the sort of the twist for the story uh, that it changed um, to fit. You know the scenario. It what's funny and i guess it's not out of place for these stories is that you don't have any you don't really have any clue as to why the tattoo would change like you don't have them meet this tattoo artist that's the only thing that like in my mind i was like i would think that would be the thing that would be like the tip off was that they go to like a tattoo artist that is like you know more than just described as like a queer man, the odd fellow, you know, like it's, it's not. And again, just for anyone out there that's listening, uh, the word queer, uh, doesn't always mean it, and back in the day. It wasn't, uh, it didn't mean homosexual. It just meant strange or odd. In fact, for, you know, the sake of information, that's what, that's literally what the, uh, the definition of the word is it, as an adjective is strange or odd. And as a verb, it means to spoil or ruin. So it has nothing to do with 
uh, you know, modern day meanings and whatnot. So that that's not it's it's not a dig on that. Um, I actually have seen people online, you know, take some old stories that describe something as queer and try to create like an outrage with it. And thank God there are people that will shut that down and be like, look, here's the thing. You don't get to rewrite history to try to make these things mean this other thing, you know. Um, And sometimes that's warranted to do that. But like, you know. Words have definitions, like you know, like they have definitions, and it's it's fine. And I don't, I, I'm sorry that I'm going I'm out of my way to say this, but like, geez, these days I feel like you've got to like cover every base because everyone just tries to find a reason to get mad, like about literally anything. Anyway, sorry for going on that tangent, uh, but yeah, so they they didn't make it more of like a. You know, the tattoo artist was also into magic or did some weird spell. It was just, you know, a happenstance. It's like they were trying to, like, lead to that, being like, oh, I've never seen this place. Uh, Let's go in there. So it's like they almost wanted to have some sort of mystical thing happen but didn't quite get there. That's the only thing that was I was kind of like, okay, like, maybe it's implied and you could take that from it, but they don't—they don't really give it to you. You—you you could assume it and have some uh, head cannon, but it ain't there. Uh, but anyway, other than that, no, I—I I did enjoy it um, because again, I guess that's—I guess that's a takeaway. You can have a head cannon, like I said, that's what I'm doing um, by taking that and sort of making it like, well, there's a spe- but whatever. Everything I just said. Um. But yeah, so it was fun. But I like that they were like, even though in, in in the tattoo, in real life, the tattoo world, obviously this would not work. But like they're talking about, like the tattoo had this tattoo on it, and that tattoo had this. Like, you, you know, could never get that detail. But with magic, but with the mystical arts, you could have the most detailed tattoo within a tattoo within a tattoo, and so on and on and on. Uh, so that's cool. But I, yeah, so all that to say, I I did enjoy it. I really did. Um, despite the sort of cliche leanings, there's a nice twist, and that's what I love about how they would take, you know, these older horror stories and kind of recycle plots and whatnot, but then find find their own sort of way to do it. And I think that's awesome. And uh, you know, that's <laughs> obviously because here I am doing this podcast and doing uh now almost all old stuff, despite the uh, last episode. But, like, seriously, I think it's awesome. So um, we can continue. I think we've got two stories left. And uh, we'll wrap it up. And I can't wait to figure out what the hell I'm going to do for the next episode. But I'm just glad that I was able to start recording this um, as, as soon after the last episode as I am. So And to be almost done. That's what's crazy to me. I'm like, holy shit. The, the time has opened up. Uh, so, yeah, awesome. Uh, we'll head over to the next story, and I uh, hope you enjoy. Till death do we part. We open up on a frame by Joe Orlando. It looks like the art is. At nighttime of some type of business that is closed, 
Apparently, we've got two men, one of them wielding a flashlight. In the next scene, we'd see them standing near a safe. The yellow circle of light shot from Ernie's flashlight and slammed against the darkened office. Ernie grinned at Tommy. There she is, boy. She's all yours. So far, so good. Keep your ears open for the night watchman while I go to work. The one called Tommy took the flashlight from the one called Ernie and moved toward the safe. He knelt down before it and opened the small black bag. What time is it, Ernie? 11.30. You got 17 minutes. The night watchman doesn't get here till half past. Tommy took a small piece of emery cloth from the black bag and began to rub his fingertips with it. The scratchy sound echoed through the gloom. Ernie thinks to himself, Make him good and sensitive, kid. Which is weird. Tommy actually responds to Ernie's thought bubble and says, Don't worry, I will. I want that 30 grand as much as you do. So I guess he's... What is he? Filing his... Fingertips? Uh, I guess that's a tactic maybe people use to make them, sen- uh, you know, sensitive. Uh, who knows? I don't know. But either way, either way, he responded to a thought bubble, so clearly that was a mistake. Tommy edged up close to the safe, pressing his ear against it. He began to turn the calibrated knob with his raw fingers. So, there's your answer. Tough one, Tommy? Not bad. It needs an oiling, so it'll be easy. The office was silent except for the heavy breathing of the two men. Ernie strained his ears, listening. It's 11.20, Tommy. How's it coming? Take it easy. I'm getting it. The sweep second hand on Ernie's wristwatch danced swiftly around the dial. One minute, two, three. Ernie lit a cigarette nervously. You got less than eight minutes, Tommy. Shut up, huh? Working as fast as I can. Suddenly, a sharp click resounded through the blackness. Tommy heaved a sigh of relief. He swung open the heavy, thick door. There you are, Ernie. Hurry up. Grab the dough. We gotta get out of this place. Tommy began to stuff the neatly banded packets of crisp green bills into the small black bag. Soon, the safe was empty and the satchel bulged full. Okay, got it all. Let's blow. Come on, we'll head for the back stairs and... Listen, footsteps. The two men stiffened. Heavy footfalls approached outside the office door. The black shadow of a man in a peaked cap fell across the dull gray translucent glass. The night watchman. The bastard is early. It's only 11.26. The two men cowered in the darkness as the shadow loomed larger and larger. As soon as he opens the door... Slug him. Make a break for it. Right, quiet. He's coming in. The brass knob turned and the door swung inward. A uniformed watchman peered into the gloom. The open, empty safe yawned at him. What the? Why the safe's been... Get him, Ernie! Ernie brought the blackjack down on the watchman's head with all his strength, and the gray-clad guard crumbled to the floor. The two men darted from the office and down the stairs. We'll meet at my flat, in case we have to separate. Okay. Suddenly, the building was filled with the ear-splitting clang of bells. 
The alarm. Somebody set off the alarm. The watchman. You didn't hit him hard enough. The safe robbers hurtled down the remaining flight of steps three at a time. They burst through the front door, out into the cold night air. Look! A squad car! The deserted street was filled with the sounds of running feet and shooting voices. There they go! Stop or we'll shoot! Shots rang out. The explosions echoed off the faces of the silent buildings. Ernie felt a searing pain as a red-hot slug struck him between the shoulder blades, ripping into his chest. He stumbled forward, collapsing on the pavement. Tommy, help me, I'm hit. Tommy's hammering footsteps faded away into the night. Ernie lay face down in the gutter, choking out a cry after his fleeing partner. Tommy, wait, don't leave me. Silence closed in. Then Ernie heard the clatter of feet as the policemen came up to him. One of them rolled Ernie over. No need to worry about this guy. He'll be here when we get back. Come on, let's get the other one. The cops hurried away into the darkness. What a break. This was Ernie's chance. He looked up. An ash can towered over him, heaped with litter. Ernie reached up, closing his fingers over its slimy rim. Got to get away. Gotta get Tommy's flat. Ernie used every ounce of his strength to pull himself to his feet. A fleeting moment. He had the horrible fear that he couldn't make it. But finally, with a tremendous effort, he stood swaying in the shivery wind. Pain. Numb. Don't feel bullet. Gotta get to Tommy. Got to... Ernie staggered off down a dark alley. Rats scurried away as he dragged himself along. Back on the street, he could hear the sounds of police whistles and nightsticks cracking on the cold pavement. Cops all around. Tommy will get away. He's smart. He'll he'll lose him. Ernie stumbled down the alley, forced himself through a broken fence, and darted across an open lot. He peered around a building. If I could get across this street, I'll, I'll be okay. No one was in sight. Ernie dashed across the cobblestone gutter and into another alley. <sighs> Everything's gonna be alright now. Half an hour later, half an hour of limping through backyards, tottering across vacant lots, and scaling highboard fences, Ernie finally reached the flat. Tommy, open up! It's me, Ernie! Ernie could hear someone moving around inside. He opened the door cautiously. Tommy, I knew you'd get away. I got hit, Tommy. Huh? Tommy ignored Ernie. He brushed past him, caught hold of the open door, and slammed it shut. Tommy, ain't you glad to see me? Stupid fool. Had to go and get in the way of a slug. Ernie shuffled to the cot and fell across it. You gotta get me to a doctor. Tommy, I'm I'm dying. Well, I ain't gonna hang around here. I'm gonna head to the border. Tommy hurriedly began to pack a bag. He picked up the small black satchel filled with the stolen bills and stuffed it into the suitcase. Tommy, you ain't gonna run out on me, are you? Not me. I'm not gonna get caught. 
Tommy flung open the door and peered out. Ernie began to sob. He reached out a shaking hand, pleading. Tommy, wait, don't leave me. Don't run out of me. Give me a doctor, please. Thirty grand, that ain't bad. Not bad at all. Tommy looked back, hesitated a moment, then left. Ernie staggered to his feet, screaming after him. Tommy, what about my cut? Half the dough's mine. When Ernie reached the street, Tommy was no longer in sight. Ernie stumbled along, calling him. People passing Ernie seemed not to notice him. People passing Ernie seemed not to notice the hysterical fugitive. Tommy, come back. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. Ernie continued going, struggling to keep on his feet, wandering aimlessly through the sleeping city. A policeman, holding back a small crowd of curious onlookers, did not see him pass down the roped-off block. Well, what happened? Some guy robbed a safe. Tommy, where are you? All right, keep back, keep back. Ernie approached the group of police officers and detectives gathered on the sidewalk of the roped-off block. I, I've been shot. You, you gotta get me to a doctor. Okay, Flaggerty, take him away. The police officers did not notice Ernie, did not hear him pleading for help. Their attentions were focused on the prostrate form of a man lying in a pool of blood on the cold sidewalk. Ernie looked down at the corpse. Its wide, gazed, staring eyes looked back at Ernie. The man's face seemed familiar, very familiar. Good Lord, what? That's that's me lying there. I'm, I'm dead, dead. Hey, Lieutenant, just came over the radio. They got the other one trying to leave town. He's dead too. <laughs> well, Ernie, no wonder Tommy didn't hear you. You didn't stand a ghost of a chance of him hearing you. But don't lose spirit. He'll be able to hear you now. Oh, by the way, the cops found something strange on Ernie's corpse. <laughs> his watch. It was four minutes slow. Led to his wind-up, eh? And if you'd like to wind up behind the eight ball, that is, just send for my autograph 5 by 7 photo. Read my corner. The old witch's niche for the info on getting it. So I have to admit, I, I, like, okay, the first time I read this story, I don't know, you know, when I read back through it again, it was like, no, that's, it's obvious, like, I mean, I guess it's easy to say after you've read something, but, um, I guess it didn't dawn on me when he goes back to Tommy's apartment, like, when he's talking to him, because actually they do write the dialogue in a way, um, that, I, I don't know, they write the dialogue in a way that, like, it's kind of like, I don't know, he seems like he's he's responding to what he's saying, but then other things he says, it seems like he's ignoring him. Um, so, like, and I don't know, whatever. The first time I read this, I was like, I was still, like, didn't gather that he was dead until, like, he starts going through the street and gets to the police blockade and, like, no one sees him. That's when it's like, which is obviously right before he sees his body. Um, so I kind of was like, 
you know, I kind of felt stupid because I was like, well, it's pretty obvious. But, you know, going when you go back through it, it's kind of like, well, you know, they, they did their best to sort of misdirect when he sees Tommy, um, you know, whatever, in the apartment. And, like, he, he at first it's like he, he ignores him as he slams the door. Um, but then he does – they write one of them. Maybe it's just the one thing, but they write the one where – it seems like he's responding to what Ernie says. So that's where you're kind of like, oh, okay. Like, so it just didn't dawn on me because, again, you're reading it. It all goes so fast. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, I, I enjoyed the story. Um, I, I did. The art by Joe Orlando is awesome. Um, there's not, you know, there's not a lot to do here. It's more of just like walking to the streets and then you just kind of change scenes. So, again, it's not like a scary story, obviously. Um, it's just more of like a, I don't know. It's just supposed to been, been meant to be like kind of eerie, I guess. So, uh, but I, I did enjoy it, and I, and again, the artist is top notch for what he was given to do with it. Uh, but again, there's not much to this story, and in the end, it is kind of a cliche sort of deal of uh, of this. But uh, I do think that this trope can be used effectively, and I guess it, I guess it was because it got me. Uh, the first time I was like, oh, oh, this is what's going on. And when I realized I'm on the last page or the last like panel before the last panel, um, I, I did think it was funny that it ended with like the old witch, <laughs> like giving you the blur, but then being like, oh yeah, I can go to my quarter, order an autographed picture of the old witch, <laughs> uh, which is kind of funny. Um, which I did go into a, um, there's an antique store in town here um in Shreveport, Louisiana and uh I believe it's, it is called Timeline Antiques and they it's it's one of those things where you can have a uh, a booth there or like you know a display or whatever the stuff you want to sell so a lot of people just sell whatever um it's it's a huge place and it's two stories uh but it's it's really cool it's uh it's, it doesn't feel like a flea market it's it just feels like one big open space but you know they just have things marked well, whatever um i went because actually my friend uh had a record actually several friends who've had one had a record store uh and the other two friends had a uh, like a vintage uh, secondhand clothing boutique they eventually ended up the rent for a lot of the business places here is like really high um and so they've they've actually ended up both moving into this antique store where you get a pretty large space to put your stuff and uh so i was just browsing through there and i ran across uh uh, some several boxes of comics and um got to dig through there found some cool dollar bin stuff not really didn't really find any horror comics i did find one issue of ghosts uh but from dc but i actually already own the issue so i was kind of bummed i was hoping to come across some old creepy magazines or something but i'm sure people have scoured through those but anyway the whole point of this was i the uh, speaking of the autograph five by seven i came across that one booth had um some old star wars toys and sitting on some old antique like serving dish there was a five by seven uh drawing of shazam captain marvel um and it was it looked really old and it was in a protective sleeve and uh it was it was actually really cool. It was like fifty bucks, which not that that's not a fair price because it was like signed by I can't remember the artist that drew it, but it was like 
Um, on the back of that, though, it had, I say signed by, it didn't look like it was actually autographed. I think it was part of the print, but uh, on the back, it was cool because it was an ad for um, uh, Wiz Comics, but it was like, see Captain Marvel you know, at the movies, weekly or whatever. And they were advertising for the serials that they would do. And uh, it was just cool. I don't know. I might have to splurge and get that and put it in a frame or something like that, even though I know we're not talking about horror comics, but... It just reminded me of this. I was like, well, it actually, if I came across an old witch 5 by 7 sign, maybe I would get that. And I thought it was kind of ridiculous at first. But uh, you know what? <laughs> I saw that and was like, oh, neat. Oh, $50. Okay. Sorry. Can't do that right now. Um, but, yeah. Anyway, I've always wanted to uh, – I, I tried to look – I said it before. I tried to look up, like, some of this merch that they were advertising and couldn't find it. But uh, I wonder if you can – you can go to EC Comics and find, like, big rubber masks of, like, the old witch and the Crypt Keeper and, uh, you know – Vault Keeper and all that stuff um, in like an online store somewhere. So who knows? Maybe some of that stuff is still out there. Let me know if you if you have any of this stuff from back in the day. I would love to. Uh, I'd love to hear about it or send send photos or whatever to Horror Comics Podcast at Gmail dot com or on Twitter at Horror Comics Pod. I'd I'd love to uh, see that or hear about it or whatever. Even if you don't have it anymore, just any stories about having sent off for any of these cool things from comic books. Um, I'd love to hear about because I've actually never done that. I was, I never wanted to actually cut the, um, you know, cut the pages out. And I, I guess it never occurred to me and we didn't, out, we didn't own one, but it never occurred to me to like go to like where my mom worked or go to like, uh, I guess I would, I don't know even what store it would have been when I was a kid that we would have had in town to go like make a copy of it and then cut that out. But, uh, either way, um, yeah. So again, enjoyed the story. Uh, just you know, for what it was, and uh, we're gonna move on to. Yeah, we got one one left. Last story here, which actually takes us over to the Crypt of Terror. <laughs> I see your drooling faces. That you're hungry for another terror tale from my collection here in the crypts. Well, this one ought to satisfy your appetite. Yes, it's me, the Crypt Keeper, your host in the Crypt of Terror. Come in. I'm about to tell you a yawn guaranteed to make your hair stand on end and your blood freeze and your... Ah, you know the old oil. Oil! That reminds me of deep fat frying which is what our story concerns itself with. That and barbecuing. I call this delicious delirium delving. What's cooking? The shabbily dressed man plods up to the roadside eating place, pushes open the rickety screen door, lets it slam resoundingly behind him, and looks around. His gaze shifts from the empty tables and chairs to the sawdust-covered floor, to the counter with its line of empty stools, to the glaring faces of the food stand's two proprietors. Not very busy, are you? Go on, scram. No handouts. The one with the tattered clothes shakes his head and smiles at the two behind the counter. You're wrong, gentlemen. I'm not the one who is looking for a handout. You are. This place is a failure, isn't it? None of your business. You want something to eat or don't you? Not right now. Uh, first, let me finish. Uh, in the first three weeks since you foolishly purchased this uh, so-called roadside restaurant from its last owner, you've had a total of 62 customers, uh, hardly enough to keep 
you in business. In fact, I would say two more months of that kind of business and an average of three meals sold a day will bust you. You mean you've been out there counting our customers for three weeks? Exactly. I also counted the number of cars that passed on the highway outside in the same period. Uh, know how many? 22,000. Over 900 a day. Uh, about two cars each minute. Yes, if you could stop, say, one out of ten of those cars, you'd serve 100 meals a day or more. Uh, think what that would mean. A hundred? Boy, that'd be something. Yeah, smart guy. Uh, how you gonna stop him? That, gentlemen, is my secret. My offer is very simple. I'll work for nothing until this place shows a profit. For nothing? Well, for my meals. I'll sleep in the back, but after I shape the place, install my own methods and ideas, and the business begins to show a profit instead of a loss, then I get 50%. Half the profits. Those are my terms. The huge fat one looks at the small skinny one. They've sunk their life savings into this place. Their situation is desperate. They've lost steadily. Their bank account is almost gone. Any offer, any way to show a profit, sounds good to them. What do you say, Herman? Half a profit is better than no profit at all, Charlie. Let's give them a chance. Then it's a deal? Okay, stranger. It's a deal. You make this place pay, and you can have half the profits. Good. You might as well get acquainted. My name's Eric Edwards. A thick-lipped grin spreads over the fat one's jolly face. I'm Herman Ditter. This is Charlie Marson. Glad to know you. Now, here's my plan. This place is like every other roadside eatery on the highway. We've got to specialize. You've heard the expression, jack of all trades, master of none? Well, we're going to specialize in one dish. Listen. Hear that? From far off, a rooster crows. Its rasping cry echoing through the balmy California air. All I hear is chickens on that farm up the road. And they're probably very cheap. We're going to specialize in chicken. Nothing but chicken. The next day and the days that follow are filled with the sounds of sawing and hammering as Eric begins to change the appearance of the little restaurant. What's he doing up there, Herman? Looks like Eric's making the roof over, Charlie. Slowly, the silhouette of a huge chicken takes shape. Large, brilliantly colored letters are painted on it. The chicken coop. Hey, that's pretty snazzy, Eric. This ought to attract attention, eh, boys? Then the clinking and chinking of bricks resound over the busy highway. He must be nuts. He's putting up a chimney right in front of the place. What in the places is that, Eric? It's going to be a barbecue, Charlie. We're going to cook the chickens right out in front so everyone can see it from the road. Soon a tiny curl of smoke rises from the barbecue. The succulent, mouth-watering odor of broiling chickens wafts toward the busy highway. And we have a family in their car, uh, a man and a woman, and their two children. The woman says, Mmm, that smells good. Look, barbecue chicken. Let's stop and eat there, Sam. Okay, Flo. Uh, how about it, kids? Hungry? Yeah, yippee. Totally California accents. And her name is Flo. Sam and Flo. I mean, just fucking perfect. So highway travelers begin to stop at the chicken coop. They crowd the tables that have been moved outside, watching their orders turn on the spit before the red-hot coals. This sure is nice, eh, Bella? Some idea. Yum, I'm starved. Delicious. The chicken coop begins to thrive as more and more customers jam the novel establishment. You certainly have done wonders, Eric. We'll have to buy some more tables to accommodate the flood of customers. An adjacent tract of land bordering the highway is leased and cleared. This will make room for more cars and the deep fat fryer. Deep fat fryer? Well, what's that for? Southern style fried chicken. It'll be a good addition to the barbecued fowl. You sure are a shrewd businessman, Eric. 
a large, shiny copper cauldron is brought in and southern-style deep-fat fried chicken is added to the menu. And now we get one of the most confusing spellings for a southern white woman's accent uh, that I've possibly ever seen, but I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to do it. Mmm, good. This is better than the mayuk. It way by a comb in Georgia, sir. This is better than they make it. <laughs> I can't even say it. I can't even read it. This is better than this. This is better than they make it way back home in Georgia, sir. Georgia being J O dash J A, sir. So I mean, I guess I get. I guess I've probably heard some of my family members from the backwoods talk like this uh, but when you see it spelled out like this it's just a little over the top uh but regardless um is it herman i believe it's herman yeah the big guy says why thank you ma'am the fame of the chicken coop begins to spread my husband and i drove 30 miles to try your barbecue chicken really that's most gratifying ma'am the success of the chicken coop with its outdoor barbecue and deep fat fryer is unbelievable. In one year, the tiny food stand grows to a huge roadside emporium with a hundred car parking lot and seats for 250 people. Charlie, Herman, I think it's time to build a new chicken coop. I have visions of something big, something stupendous. We'll build a gigantic barbecue capable of broiling 50 chickens at one time. Charlie and Herman say in unison, Whatever you say, Eric. Construction on the new chicken coop is begun. A beautiful, modernistic restaurant rises beside its predecessor. The barbecue is tremendous. Each one of these four spits is 12 feet long. We'll catch the fat drippings from the broiling chickens in that catch pan there and use the stuff in the deep fat fryer. Say, there's an economical idea, eh, Herman? The deep fat fryer is a huge cauldron over six feet in diameter and two feet deep. We can deep fat fry 50 chickens at one time in this thing. We certainly have come a long way, eh, Charlie? When the new chicken coop is open to the public, it is an immediate success. Even with its huge capacity, people have to wait online. <laughs> people have to wait online for tables. Uh, no, I didn't misread that. It says online. They were uh, predicting the future of like what it means to order food, I suppose. But no, it was just a typo. They meant to type inline, but Freudian slip in the past, I suppose. Boy, look at that barbecue. And look at that cauldron. Mmm, smells good, eh? I love how every time I make a, a woman say, mmm, or mmm, it's always, like, basically the same as the, like, the old witch voice. So, I'm sure, yeah. Anyway, fortune smiles upon the three restaurateurs. Profits pour in. And with mounting profits come mounting greed. Look at these books, Herman. We netted $2,000 last week. That means 500 apiece for you and me. And 1,000 for Eric. Quite a large chunk for him, huh, Herman? If, if he wasn't around, we could split it 50-50. Not 500, but one grand for each of us. Oh, but what can we do? We have that agreement we made back when we were nothing. If Eric were to die, we could forget the agreement. Oh, he's healthy as a... Don't be as thick as you look, you fat idiot. I'm not talking about a natural death. You you mean murder? Yes. He's got no family. 
He came to us penniless and alone. So he put us on top. So what? He's got a lion's share. I say, let's take it all for ourselves. What? What's the plan, Charlie? Simple. Eric bought himself that little ranch house off the main highway. Now, suppose while he slept, it caught fire and he burned to death. That night, Eric is awakened by a sound in his room. He sits up, staring into the darkness. Who? Who's there? It's me, Eric. Herman. Don't be frightened. Despite his lumbering hulk, Herman is upon Eric in a flash. Charlie moves out of the shadows with a coil of rope. Stick the gag in his mouth. Yeah! The fat one and the skinny one work swiftly. Soon, Eric is securely tied to the bed, and the room is in flames. So long, Eric. Thanks for all the help. From now on, we work alone. Just me and Herman, 50-50. As the two men watch from a vantage point far down Eric's private road, hot searing tongues of fire leap upward out of the windows. Soon, Eric's nice new home is a roaring inferno. Come on, Herman. Let's go back to the chicken coop and make plans. Boy, that's some fire. But as the fat one and the thin one disappear into the night, a blackened and charred figure crawls painfully from the flaming house, howling like a dog that has just been struck by a car. The odor of burned flesh fills the night as the scorched figure drags itself along, its blood-curdling screams of agony echoing into the darkness. In their office in the new chicken coop, Herman and Charles drink a toast to their future, but suddenly their grins freeze on their faces as the door is flung open. Eric, it, it can't be. In the morning, the police, investigating the burning of Eric's nice new house, stop by the new chicken coop to inquire. Look at this. On the floor, it, it's the blackened and burned corpse of a man. That's Eric Edwards' body. He must have been caught in the fire in his house, but... How in the world did he manage to drag himself all the way here in that condition? Then one policeman's gaze falls upon the gigantic barbecue. Good lord, I I feel sick. Herman Ditter's sizzling body hangs from the topmost spit before the now glowing embers. The fat, rendered from his once obese body, bubbles and gurgles in the immense cauldron, bobbing in the boiling grease is the brown, seared remains of Charlie Marson. This... This guy's been broiled, and this one's been southern fried. (laughs) Now my tale is done, kiddies. Well done. I hope it's left you with a ravishing appetite. What? Not hungry? Oh, that's a shame. I thought you might like to join me at the chicken coop. Where is it? Why, next time you go out driving, look for it. They have the most delicious broiled food. Or do you like yours southern fried? Well, that winds up the old hag's mag. We'll all see you next in mine. Tales from the Crypt. Bye now. So, we've got food horror. Always a good classic go-to. Uh, we've got lots of stories like that. And, uh, you know, horror comics history with, you know, cannibalism, people being chopped up and put in there, people being put in the food, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, this one I really liked. I Honestly, I really liked it because it was like, uh, what's the fucking uh, Eric? Was that his name? Eric? 
Yeah. And he, it's like they make him <laughs> like so nice, uh, and like so helpful and smart. And he comes in out of nowhere. It's interesting that he, like, they made him like, uh, like a, I mean, I guess a homeless guy. And they say he was penniless. Um, but he comes in with this idea. I guess he just needed somebody that could give him the means to do this, basically. He sees this down and out business and is like, oh, hey, like they had the money to start it. Maybe they'll have the money maybe to – I guess they were getting the money somehow to let him buy all these bricks and, you know, make all this stuff happen. So, you know, but again, he's overly nice. He's like, oh, we'll split the profits or whatever, which I'm like – at the same time, like it makes sense. He's doing all the work. He's building all this. You know, he's he, – he's, expanding the restaurant into a second restaurant they're both huge uh and it's just like there's this like switch of like greed that happens where you know they're like wait a minute it's just yeah so you get that switch where they're like it's like they seem so like thankful until that moment when they realize like wait a minute what the hell is so yeah and uh again like any of these books the first uh, as opposed to, hey, how about we renegotiate now to maybe splitting it three ways? Uh, you know, they're never going to go the logical route. They're always going to go the, the murder route, <laughs> which is what we come to expect and, uh, you know, want to happen in these books. And sure enough, this doesn't, uh, disappoint. Um, I, I like the, uh, I, I, I actually kind of like they don't give you any kind of explanation because, like, Eric's body is burned into what I can only describe as like a crude uh, putty soldier from Power Rangers. Um, or, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, something like that. That just shrieks. And he's only in two panels. He's just of him screaming, uh, making his way there. And then you just kind of see the aftermath later. And his body is gone. That's where I was like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe he just jumped in the grease. I don't know. But, uh yeah, you see the all burnt up feet of uh, Herman. So uh, it's not overly gory, but then, you know, you do get it. All of it is like more of implied, obviously. So, um, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. I did. It's real. I think it's really well written. I like the pacing too, because you're kind of like, well, what, you know, what are they going to kind of, how are they going to end this sort of thing? You know, uh, well, I mean, you know how they're going to end it, but like not necessarily how they're going to get there or how they're going to decide to do it. Uh but yeah, again, I enjoyed it. And again, the, the art is awesome. I just, I'm trying to see if I can, it's Jack Davis. Yeah, Jack Davis did this. That's, that's awesome. Um, and you know, I'm not sure who wrote it because again, they don't like to give credits on these old comics. Let me see if I can go back to the beginning. And, and if I read it before and it like, and I just don't remember. Yeah, I just, I don't know. No telling. I I I had I had more of a hard time finding. I was able to find more credits before on a lot of this stuff. Here, the artists are, are writing like in the um, Dead Man's Chest with Johnny Craig, and like the artists are actually signing their names. As far as the writers, um, I mean, maybe they're writing it too. Okay, so on the back, there's a preview. It says in this issue, and it goes in backwards order. So it starts with "What's Cooking" by Jack Davis. Till death do us part, or, or sorry, till death do we part. By Joe Orlando, On a Dead Man's Chest by Johnny Craig, and Poetic Justice by Graham Ingalls. So I, maybe they're art and, and writing, so that's cool. Um, so they actually do, I was wrong, they do give credit on the back. Now these are, again, reprints, um, but I'm glad that they did that anyway. So yeah, so that's The Haunt of Fear, number 12. And um, 
I love freaking, <laughs> I love EC Comics. Uh, I really do. I, and I have so many that I can go through. So I'm excited to keep pouring through those and, uh, you know, talking about them and seeing what uh, kind of surprises come our way and, and some things that are not so surprising. But sometimes, like, you know, they, they, they recycle a lot of the same story tropes, but it'll be interesting it, the way that in which they, you know, choose to get to that same kind of cliche twist. So, again, it kind of makes that twist effective again. But uh, regardless, um, I always enjoy it, even if it is cliche or whatever. Um, and even if it isn't the best, I generally have a good time reading it uh, and then kind of going through it. So thank you all for listening. And if you again, if you have suggestions or anything you want to send my way, uh, the Twitter, once again, is uh, Horror Comics Pod. And then you can email me at horrorcomicspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, again, with suggestions. If you're writing a book, if you're drawing a book, and you want me to give it a shout-out, um, I'm happy to check it out and, uh, you know, take take a look at it. I'm happy to say something about it, and I'm happy to retweet, uh, you know, any anything you want to post or whatever. So I always I'm, – I'm down to – I know I don't have a huge audience, but I'm down to uh, – share it with the audience that I do have and that I, I'm, I appreciate more than, uh, I could ever, than I could ever say. I appreciate everybody that listens and interacts on Twitter and, uh, emails. And even if, if you're not listening and you don't interact, that's totally cool too. Uh, I just appreciate you listening. I, I, like I said, I do see the numbers, um, every now and then when I check in and it's always heartwarming. So thank you all. And, uh, it's, it's Halloween season. So I'm hoping to get, uh, yet another one out there i would love again i want to reiterate i would love to hear your um if you have like you know some crazy like scary experiences or something if you have experience with anything supernatural or having live in a haunted place whatever it might be i would love to read your story on the show uh maybe in a special halloween episode but so far i haven't received anything and uh you know, that's cool. If you don't, if you guys don't want to share them, that's fine. I just thought it might be cool to throw one together and I don't have to say your name or anything like that. Again, keep it anonymous, uh, if you want, but regardless, send it, send it over if you want and, uh, we can talk about it and I can talk about it on here and maybe share some of my own experiences. So you all, uh, have a great October. Have a great, uh, morning, afternoon, evening, night, whatever, witching hour, whenever it is you're listening to this and keep on reading and supporting horror comics.